<clears throat> Good morning, St. Paul's. Great to see so many of you here in person, and uh, thank you also for those of you joining us on live stream this morning. Um, so, <clears throat> it hit me that this week we arrived at two significant anniversaries. So the first one is, you can probably guess what it is. Uh, this Sunday is the year anniversary of us having to deal with the pandemic. It was the second Sunday in March uh, 2020. I remember it well. It was probably like Tuesday or Wednesday that I remember staying up half the night reading one scary headline after another on my phone and then realizing, oh, I probably should not go to the river and rail tomorrow morning. And, uh, and then Keith and I had to meet and we talked about whether or not we should uh, cancel service and we decided to shift to live stream and for the last year uh, things have not been normal and I just want to acknowledge that that's a long time <laughs> you know a year is a long time to feel like going into a public place is risky behavior uh, it's, it's a long time to feel like you can't do church uh, normally and um, I just want to take a moment to mourn what we've lost over the last year. You know, it's been a year since we were able to freely give each other hugs and handshakes. It's been a year since we passed the peace. I know some of you are probably happy about that, but... <laughs> uh, it's been a year since, you know, we fellowshiped without masks on our faces. It's been a year since all of our membership felt comfortable coming to a service. Um, it's been a year since we had a meal downstairs together. It's been a year since coffee was provided in church. It's a big deal. It's, it's, uh, it's been a year um, since we felt like we can go into one another's homes, you know, without, without worrying at all, you know, sit down around a table together, fellowship with one another. And that's sad. That's really sad. So this is a sad anniversary, but as we're mourning what we've lost, there is reason to be thankful and to celebrate because we are still here. Um, God has sustained our church. We're still able to pay the bills. Uh, we are still able actually to assist people in need. That's something that we've done throughout this year. Um, you guys have given, not only have you given, but you've given generously so that we've been able to to help people who have been negatively impacted by the pandemic. And so there is a lot to be thankful for. We mourn this anniversary, but we should also celebrate. And we also have reason to celebrate because, and I don't want to jump the gun here, but I think we have every reason to be hopeful that there is a light at the end of this pandemic tunnel, um, that things are not always going to be like this. At last I heard, everybody who wants a vaccine should be able to get it by May. Um, so. It's not going to be like this forever, right? And uh, I, I encourage you to let that encourage you this morning. So that's the first anniversary I realize we've reached. The second anniversary actually was uh, two weeks ago, would probably have been the right time to, to mention it. But I realize that I have now been pastor at this church for five years. So for, for half a decade. Um, I always remember that my first day was February 29th, 2016, a leap year, so that's easy to remember. 
And so I just want to thank you all for letting me serve as your pastor over these last five years. I don't, I'm not planning on going anywhere. Um, so, but I'm just, I just want to say, like, it's been a privilege, and, and I, I feel grateful uh, every day that I get to, to serve you guys in, in this way. But the real reason I brought that up was not so that I could be like, oh, I've been here for five years, yay me. But because my five-year anniversary reminds me of an event that took place five years ago on my first day. And this is a story that I realize some of you may have never heard. And I think it is a story that bears repeating at least once every five years. So on my first day, I came to church at our old location on Stores Road. And we were going to have a leadership team meeting. And naturally, I'm a little nervous. This is my first day on the job, first day as a pastor. Um, and, you know, not really sure entirely what I'm doing. And uh, we sat down together, and Keith was leading the meeting. And we bowed our heads to pray. And as soon as we went to pray, the fire alarm went off. And you know how it is when the fire alarm goes off. Usually you think, oh, it's a, it's a drill or it's just an accident or something like that. Like, usually you think it's a false alarm, that it's not a big deal. So I felt more annoyance than anything. Like, oh, you know, we go to pray and the fire alarm goes off. Keith says, oh, I hope the pizza's okay, because he had put a, a pizza in the oven. So Keith goes downstairs. And there was, you know, maybe a minute or two, not even that long, but there was a, a brief period of time where I'm sitting there, I believe with Bethany Donaldson and Lori Bell, the alarm is going off, and I'm, it, it just hits me, like, well, man, something wrong could be happening right now. Something bad could be happening. I'm the pastor of this church. I probably shouldn't just be sitting here. So I was like, I guess I'll go downstairs and see what's going on. So I go down the stairs, and I start coming through the hallway at the end of the stairs, and then Keith is running towards me, his eyes wide with terror, and he yells, it's a real fire. And so I round the corner a little more, I turn and I look, and yes, it is a real fire. So there were some rags that were on top of the stove, and one of the burners had accidentally been turned on, and the rags had caught on fire, and then the rags produced flames big enough that the cabinets caught on fire. And so I round the corner, and I'm looking at these flames, and I just, I froze, you know, and I thought, this is a bad start. <laughs> and, um, you know, I had just graduated from seminary a couple months earlier, and I had taken pastoral ministry classes on, like, how to deal with conflict in the church and all kinds of unexpected stuff. And, but believe it or not, they never taught anything about fire safety. <laughs> and so, you know, I was just like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is terrible. And then, and then, thank the Lord, Keith came to the rescue. Now, I probably made it sound like when Keith was running towards me that he was fleeing the scene, which was not true. Keith was actually taking responsibility, and he was running towards the fire extinguisher. He, I found out later he had never used a fire extinguisher in his life, but you would not know it by the way he handled it. He, he, he was like a boss with that fire extinguisher, and, and he, he put out that fire right away. Um, so I like to say, you know, 
Yes, Keith does bear responsibility for starting the fire, uh, but he bears uh, more responsibility for stopping the fire. Starting it was not intentional, stopping it was, right? And uh, Keith has been putting out fires in the church ever since, you know, metaphorically speaking. That's, he's very good at that, so. <laughs> And so the fire department had to come, and we had to open up all the windows, and later that week, someone had to come and assess the damage, and the guy who came to assess the damage actually just happened to be a former pastor, so that was kind of a neat connection that we made when he, when he came. Um, and then that Sunday, I had something to talk about in my first sermon, right, which, which was exciting, and I, I suggested that we change the logo to St. Paul's to like a flame, like Pentecost, right? And then the tagline, it's a real fire. And, you know, unfortunately, that never caught on, but probably for the best. So that was my first day. And here we are, five years later, no more fires, right? The church is still here. It hasn't burned down. It's faced a lot of challenges over the last five years, as every church does, and, and this pandemic is just... You know, it's another fire, metaphorically speaking. But God has sustained us. I believe he'll continue to sustain us. And um, I celebrate what he's done over the last five years. So, um, I wish I could say that telling that story was setting us up for the sermon. But it wasn't. I just wanted to tell it. <laughs> so... Uh, we are in our second week now in our Lenten series on the cross, the hidden wisdom of God revealed. Every year it's customary to talk about the cross on Good Friday, and every year I feel like this is not enough time to really talk about the significance of the cross. The Apostle Paul said when he preached to the Corinthians, he said, When I was among you, I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. And that tells us that what we learn through Christ on the cross is supposed to be central to our faith. It's supposed to be central to the message that we proclaim. And last week, we talked about one angle of the cross, which is, hopefully you remember, the cross is a revelation of what God is like. The cross is a revelation of what God is like. Uh, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus reveals what our Heavenly Father is like. And so when we look at Jesus on the cross, we should see a divine disclosure of the character of God. And what we learn looking at the cross, what the three aspects we talked about last week, uh, are that God bears our sin, God loves us, and God identifies with us in our suffering. God bears our sin, God loves us, and God identifies with us in our suffering. Now this week... We're going to consider a different aspect of the cross, look at it from a different angle. And I just want to give you a heads up that this is going to be a hard one. Last week's probably made you feel good. It made me feel good. Uh, this one might make you feel uncomfortable. So if you missed last week's message, definitely go back and listen to that one too, because I don't think it's good to just hear this one in isolation without the rest of the picture here. But here's the big idea. The cross is an example for us of how we are to live. The cross is an example for us of how we are to live. Now, this was something that Jesus told his disciples very clearly. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I encourage you to, to, to turn to uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 21. 
Lord, right now we just invite you to speak directly to our hearts. Um, Father, open us up to receive whatever it is that you want to tell us. Lord, we, uh, we want you to work in us. We want you to transform us. Uh, we want to experience the abundant life that you have come to bring. And Lord, we pray that this morning would help to serve that end. In Jesus' name, amen. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. So Peter had this idea of what Jesus was going to do. He had certain expectations. Shortly before this, G uh, Peter had declared that he recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Now, for centuries, the Jews had been expecting that this leader would come, who they called the Messiah, who would set things right with the world and put Israel in its proper place uh, in the world. And Peter, shortly before this, he confessed, you, Jesus, you are that prophesied king. You are the Messiah. You are the son of God, he said. And Jesus was like, yep, yes, you're right. I am. And so Peter was expecting that the Messiah would be a triumphant, conquering political leader, a military hero. That was what he was expecting. But then, here's Jesus saying that the religious and political establishment is going to reject him, that he's going to have to suffer, and he's going to have to die. And that is not at all what Peter has been expecting. And so Peter reacts very strongly against that. Right? He says, never, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. Suffering and death, Jesus? Come on. No. That's not part of the plan. That shouldn't be part of the plan. You, know, you should be riding in on a big horse and kicking butt. That's what should be happening. But then Jesus doesn't hold back in his response at all, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. It's going to be a tough day when the incarnate God calls you the prince of darkness. <laughs> get behind me, Satan. Now, of course... Jesus wasn't saying that Peter was literally Satan. But what he was saying was, what you are saying, Peter, is the sort of thing that Satan would want you to say. What you're saying is of a demonic spirit. Surely you don't have to suffer, Jesus. Surely you don't have to be crucified. You should be a triumphant, victorious, conquering king. And Jesus' response is to say, no, Peter, that is actually not a godly way of thinking. You're not thinking in a godly way. You're thinking in a very worldly way. 
And then Jesus turns to all of his disciples and he says, look, you've got to get this straight. If anyone is going to follow me, he has to be willing to pick up his cross. Now, why does Jesus change the subject from talking about what he's going to have to go through to what his disciples will have to go through? Did you notice that? He makes this shift. Why does he do that? Well, I suspect the reason is because Jesus always has insight into what's going on in the hearts of the people that he's talking to. You see that throughout the Gospels. Sometimes it seems like Jesus almost speaks to people like in a non sequitur, like he just jumps to, to something else. Um, and I think Jesus has this insight into why people say the things they do, why they ask the kinds of questions that they, they do. And he doesn't beat around the bush. He just goes straight for the heart of the matter. Right? And he recognizes that one of the reasons that Peter so objects to Jesus having to die is because he doesn't want to suffer and die. Right? He knows that if his master has to suffer and die, then that sort of thing might be on the table for him. But that's not what he wants. He wants to reign in power with a conquering king. Right? <clears throat> so Jesus recognizes, okay, there's a heart issue here that has to be dealt with. And so he says very clearly, you have to recognize that following me includes suffering. That it includes picking up your cross. And so we today need to, need to read this and recognize part of being Jesus' disciples involves seeing in Christ crucified a, an example or a pattern that we are supposed to follow. You know, sometimes the, this message gets communicated that something like, Christ suffered so we don't have to. And there is some truth to that, okay? We don't have to pay forever for our sins because Christ bore that for us. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But it's also true that we're supposed to see in Christ crucified an example for our lives, an example for how we are to live and for how we are supposed to overcome evil in the world, the way of the cross. So what is that example? What, is that, what does it practically mean to pick up our cross? I'm going to offer today a list of four answers to that question, the sort of thing that I think Jesus had in mind when he said this. I encourage you to write these down, to reflect on them this week. These are by no means the only four things, but these are the things that came to my mind. So what does it mean to pick up our cross? Number one, picking up our cross means turning from self-will to God's will. Turning from self-will to God's will. So we have to remember the cross was not just an instrument of discomfort, right? It was an instrument of death. And so to pick up our cross is to, in some sense, die. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, famous 20th century theologian who uh, died for resisting the Nazis, uh, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, um, Neither Bonhoeffer or Jesus meant that everybody who follows Christ is going to have to literally die a martyr's death. Okay, that's not, not what they meant. But what they meant is that following Jesus involves part of what you might call dying to self. 
Jesus says, anyone who will follow me must deny himself, right? And, and one way of thinking about this is in our natural state of being, we have what you would call a self-orientation, where we're constantly saying, my will be done, my will be done, my will be done. And to pick up our cross is to shift from my will be done to God's will be done. God's will be done. Even in those times when my will feels in conflict with God's will. Now just to be clear, it's not always that we're going to feel like God's will is in conflict with our will. There are times where they're going to feel in harmony. But there's also going to be times where they don't feel like they're in harmony. And picking up our cross means choosing to say, God's will be done, not my will. And Jesus modeled that for us. You might remember that the night that he was arrested, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying to the Father. And he didn't want to be crucified, right? No, no sane human would want to go through that kind of agony. He didn't want to go through that. And so he prayed to the Father. He said, if there's some way, spare me this pain. But... Not my will, but yours, Father. And that's the example for us. That's how it looks to pick up our cross. Not as I will, God, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. In how I spend my money. Right? In how I spend my time. In how I steward my sexuality. In what goals I pursue. Not my will, but yours. So the cross reminds us that part of following Jesus involves this, this dying to self. And, and the way the New Testament put it, puts it is that part of the life of faith involves taking that self-oriented part of us, that part of us that is determined to live independently of God, and crucifying it. That's the language that it used. Cruci crucifying it. When we're baptized, the New Testament encourages us to think of it as when you go down under the water, it's like that, that self-oriented part of you dies, and then you rise to life with this new God-oriented part of you that, that wants to do the will of God. I know, this, I said this is a tough message. This is a really tough, and, tough message. Come and die. <laughs> it's not like the kind of message that uh, is a, probably a great church growth strategy, you know. Not the sort of message that people are knocking down the door to come and hear. And yet Jesus said this, right? Now just to be clear, okay, Jesus doesn't tell us to pick up our crosses because he wants us to be miserable. It's very important for us to recognize that. You know, he doesn't call us to turn from self-will to God's will because he's this controlling tyrant. He calls us to die because paradoxically in dying, we find life. You know, I said earlier when I prayed, Jesus said that he came to bring us abundant life. He said that, right? I've come to bring life to the full, abundant life. He wants us to be fully alive. But he also told us that we need to die. And those two things might sound contradictory, but they're actually not. This is a, this is a beautiful paradox, which is that in losing our lives, we find them. In dying to self, we find, we find life. Uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, puts it this way. I, I've, I remember hearing this quote, and it's always stuck with me. Jesus came, among other reasons, 
to remove the melancholy burden of living for yourself. Jesus came, among other reasons, to remove the melancholy burden of living for yourself. We are not designed to find life and joy and peace and happiness in that self-oriented way of being. It's just not what we're made from. As Jesus said, it's in losing our lives that we find them, in this turning from self-will to God's will. You know, there's a lot of emphasis in our culture right now on, you know, finding yourself, discovering who you are, discovering your, your identity. And there's a lot of emphasis on sort of looking inward to find that. And that, I mean, that's part of it. But what Christ would say is that we don't truly find ourselves until we're willing to lose ourselves, in a sense, until we're willing to turn from this self-orientation and say, not my will, but your will, God. Paradoxically, it's when we do that that then we discover who we truly are. All right, what else does it mean to pick up our cross? Picking up our cross means turning from pride to humility. Turning from pride toward humility. Jesus going to the cross is an astounding act of humility. If we don't realize that, we have not really understood the cross yet. Okay, so here we have the creator of all things, the source of everything that is beautiful and good, uh, the one who is deserving of the highest honor and praise, and he experiences this astounding dishonor, this unbelievable humiliation, and he willingly experiences that. That is a radical, radical humiliation. And, I said this would make us uncomfortable, Scripture tells us that this is an attitude that we should also exemplify. The same attitude. Uh, Philippians 2. Uh, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? something to be clutched and held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Whoa. Whoa. That is a high standard. Do we have that kind of attitude at all? None of us are going to be perfect, of course, but... It's good to take a little inventory of ourselves. Do we have that kind of attitude at all? Think about it this way. A prideful attitude, the opposite of this, is always concerned with our honor and our glory and what other people think about us, whether they're impressed by us, whether they think that we're um, talented or attractive or smart or right. You know, that kind of prideful attitude, it, it manifests itself in us obsessing over things like how many followers do we have on social media? And how many of my posts got liked or shared? I'm saying this because I know something about this kind of feeling. The prideful attitude, it always reveals itself in what you might call a posture of defensiveness. I always got to guard my honor, guard my pride. 
So we have to ask ourselves, am I easily offended? Is that Christ-like, to be easily offended? Don't think so. Do we feel the need to fight with anyone who disagrees with us all the time? Um, do we feel a desperate need to be acknowledged as correct, to be acknowledged as intelligent and talented and right? You know, it's so common to feel a desire to be recognized in those ways. And if I look at social media through that lens, it is like an ocean of humanity crying out, would you just acknowledge me, please, <laughs> as valuable, as right, as smart, please. And if you don't, I'll fight you on it. There's so much of that. But Jesus in the cross points us to a different posture, a different way of being in the world, right? Don't obsess over your own personal glory and, and honor. Don't be that guy who yells, do you know who I am? Because nobody had more right to do that than Jesus, right? And yet he went to the cross. So what else does it mean to pick up our cross? I got two more. Number three, picking up our cross means turning from revenge to forgiveness. Turning from revenge to forgiveness. So last week we considered how the cross reveals that uh, God bears our sin. right? And another word for that is God forgives. On the cross we see God absorbing the consequences of sin. And the cross is this incredible revelation of God's willingness to forgive, of the forgiveness of God. So, when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to pick up your cross... One of the things we should hear him saying is, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to forgive. You have to be willing to forgive your brother, your sister, and even your enemy. Because that's what I did on the cross. You have to be willing to let go of your desire for revenge and retaliation. You have to be willing to let go of bitterness and hatred that you're carrying in, in your heart. Now, I know that forgiveness is an extremely difficult topic. And I've been told before, we should do a whole sermon series just on forgiveness. And I think that's a, that's a good suggestion. Hopefully, eventually, we, we will do that. So whatever I'm about to say now is going to feel insufficient, because it's just it's such a big topic. It's a weighty one. But I do want to recognize something right now about forgiveness. So a lot of the time, when we hear, God wants you to forgive we feel offended because we feel like God is asking, asking us to uh, dismiss the severity of a sin or to act like it was no big deal. And it's just so important to recognize that is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness has nothing to do with acting like sin is not a big deal. Okay, that's not, that's not it at all. The cross never suggests that sin is not a big deal. Okay, the cross is a revelation of how much God forgives, but it's also a revelation of how awful sin is. Right? That, that it would cause uh, this, this unbelievable suffering. We see the injustice of sin, the cruelty of sin. In the wounds of Jesus, we should see how ugly sin is. Right? And at no point on the cross is Jesus just like, this is not a big deal. No. So forgiveness is what happens when we fully acknowledge the weight of sin. And yet, we still choose to let it go. Right? We still choose to absorb that desire for revenge and retaliation and let it go. 
Definitely not about saying the sin didn't matter. And I know, I know that's still, that's very hard, right? Sometimes it feels easier almost to say, oh yeah, I'll just convince myself that, that the sin wasn't, wasn't real or that it wasn't a big deal. No, no. It's okay. Real forgiveness still involves you admitting that. But at the same time, you let go of the hatred and like Jesus, you pray for your torturer and you say, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Maybe as I'm talking about forgiveness right now, someone's coming to your mind and you're thinking, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I just can't. I can't forgive. I can't let it go. I, I want that person to suffer. I do. And that's not going to change. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you, take that before God. Take your pain, take your anger, express it to him. He can take it. He is more than willing to hear you vent. But after you vent, pray this. God, help me to see this person the way that you do. Help me to be like you. Help me to be like Jesus. Help me. I cannot do it on my own. Just try to at least pray that. Get to that point. And I believe that is a prayer that God delights to answer. And you will find yourself, if you pray that earnestly, over time God will work on your heart and he will help you to move from that desire for revenge to that desire for that forgiveness, that forgiveness orientation. Might take a little while. But picking up your cross involves doing that. So. All right. One more thing. What else does it mean to pick up our cross? Picking up our cross means turning from the pursuit of power to the practice of love. I thought for a long time about how to word this one. Turning from the pursuit of power to the practice of love. Remember, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to pursue power, political power, military power. That was the expectation of what the Messiah was going to do. They wanted a leader who was going to take on the Roman Empire and prove that Israel was stronger and better than any pagan nation. That was what they expected. That was what they wanted. But Jesus did not conform to those expectations. He never led a military uprising. He didn't try to overthrow the government. You know, instead, he told his disciples to put away their swords. Instead, he said, if somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek. He said, love your enemies and pray for them. And then he told his disciples, okay, when the political and religious authorities reject me, I'm not going to fight back. I'm going to let them kill me. Instead of pursuing power, Jesus willingly laid down his power to demonstrate his love. Instead of pursuing power, Jesus willingly laid down his power to display his love. And as Jesus' followers, we need to learn from that example. The hidden wisdom of God is being revealed in that. We should recognize that the Holy Spirit works through us when we're more focused on demonstrating love to our neighbors than demonstrating power over them. Another way of putting that would be, as people seeking to represent Jesus, we should want people to feel like we're more interested in loving them than in controlling them. If you look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels, you will find that there's very little indication that he ever tried to control people. 
He, in, he invited people. He challenged people. But you don't see that kind of controlling manipulation uh, that you see in a lot of other leaders. You know, sometimes he would say something, and then he'd just be like, well, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, if you can handle it, pay attention. If you can't, well, you know. He'd say tough things, and people would walk away, and, and he, wouldn't, he wouldn't say, get back here. Right? There's, you don't see anything like that. A, a huge crowd left once when he said something that was really hard for them to hear, and then he turned to the disciples, and he's like, are you guys going to leave too? Right? That's not the way that a controlling person acts. Jesus was not, not controlling. And, of course, even though people wanted him to take power by force, he didn't do it. And here's the lesson here. You know, a lot of the time we think that if we want to transform society, if we want to be salt and light in the world, if we want to make the world a better place, then the best way to do it is by seeking power and control. But Jesus' ministry, and especially the cross, it, it suggests a different strategy, right? Sacrificial love, humility, service, turning the other cheek, loving our enemies. If we want to see the world transformed, that is the Jesus way. And even though we might not expect it, it's actually the way that works. All right. I said this was a hard message. I'm sure it's been a tough message. Picking up our cross is hard. It's one of the hardest things we can do. Jesus' example is extraordinarily difficult to follow. But I want to finish on a positive note. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. He didn't go to the cross thinking, oh, my calling is just to be miserable and to feel awful, and that's the whole point of everything, is just to, you know, be in pain. No. He went because he knew there was something to be gained through that suffering. There was a joy on the other side of it that made it all worth it. Our redemption, reconciliation, right? He knew it was worth it. And so when we think about picking up our own cross, that's the way we should think about it too. If we're following Jesus' example, right, you don't pick up your cross because you think that your calling is misery and sadness and pain. No, you pick up your cross because you know that your ultimate destiny is joy, is life, right? That's why you pick it up. If you're picking it up because you think there's some sort of, uh, you know, that God just wants us to be miserable, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Joy set before us. We should pick up our cross because we recognize that the way of the cross is the way that leads to life. right? Because we recognize that the way of the cross is the way that turns enemies into friends. Because we recognize that the way of the cross is the way that overcomes evil. Because the way of the cross is the way that leads to resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to receive this really tough message this morning. Father, we, we know uh, that you love us, that you want us to experience joy, that you want us to be agents of change and transformation in a world that is hurting. And Father, help us to recognize that, that your way of doing things is the way of love, 
the way of the cross. And yes, sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that's painful. But Father, we know that through your spirit there is strength uh, to live up to this calling. And Lord, we just we pray. We pray that you would teach us what it means to pick up our cross. Help us to do that. To daily do it, Lord. And Lord, may we find life as we do it. In Jesus' name, amen.